There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notified, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Superchargers, headlights, and more. With over 122 million parts, eBay Motors has everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Stay on your A-game with all the parts you need at the prices you want. It's easy to bring home huge wins. Keep your ride-or-die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger, fresh for everyone. This is the Sports Illustrated Boxing Podcast. It's boxing. A look inside boxing with Sports Illustrated's Chris Mannix. Interviews, analysis, and everything going on in boxing. And now a man who I wish was called the Boston Bleeder. All doctors to the ER. It's sort of like getting punched in the face. Chris Chris Mannix. All right, welcome back to another episode of the SI Boxing Podcast. Glad you could join me this week on another quarantine edition of the SI Boxing Pod. Boxing like every other sport across the world, has ground to a halt in the last few weeks. There are no fights scheduled in March, nothing in April, most likely nothing in May, with the hope that come June and in July, we can resume a normal schedule. But there is news to talk about in boxing, specifically when it comes uh, to the heavyweight division, to Canelo Alvarez. Talk about that and much more. I bring back Keith Eideck, the senior writer over at BoxingScene.com. Keith and I talk about the latest developments in Deontay Wilder versus Tyson Fury. We talk about Canelo Golovkin. Should both fighters bypass interim fights and go straight into their September showdown with everything that's happening with the coronavirus uh, pandemic? We talk a little bit about what promoters are doing right now to prepare for the future of boxing. And Andy Ruiz, what's his future in boxing? Former unified heavyweight champion is now kind of out in that boxing wilderness with no trainer and no plans for the immediate future. A little bit later on, Mikey Garcia, the four-division world champion. Mikey is coming off a recent fight and a win against Jesse Vargas. We sit down to talk about that fight and talk about Mikey's interest and the makeability of a fight with Manny Pacquiao. Mikey's been chasing that fight for a very long time. We dive into all that those details a little bit later in the pod. Quick housekeeping note, if you like this podcast, very easy way you can support it. Head over to Apple Podcasts, post a comment, leave a rating. It's simple, it's easy, it's free. It's the best way to make sure that we keep doing this podcast week after week. That's it. All right, let's go. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. 
That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, Keith Eidek is here, senior writer, BoxingScene.com, regular friend of the podcast, and uh, a man that was just telling me how much he enjoys being quarantined in New Jersey. Isn't that right, Keith? Oh, it's a treat, Chris, as I'm sure it is for you. Oh, absolutely. Well, I I don't know, man. You're a guy with a family. I'm not. So being quarantined is like kind of like a regular Tuesday in a lot of ways. You know, I mean, it's... (laughs) Not. I, I don't have I don't have children either, but uh, but I hear you though. It's uh, when when you work from home though. The one thing I will say is when you you know when I'm not on the road as as the same for you. We work from home, so you're kind of used to that already. So that helps in some ways. It's not like a complete culture shock for you when you go to working from home. Whereas people who go to an office literally every day, they find it very difficult to make the adjustment because it does take some getting used to and some discipline to kind of get your work done and everything. So, so we have that working for us in our favor, at least, you know, definitely. And, and to the people out there that have two or three kids, I feel for you, man, man and woman, whatever. I mean, if you're trapped in your home, uh, with your family, I mean, I'm sure everybody out there listens, loves their family, but there's only so much family time that, uh, that you can take. I think that's fair to say. <laughs> my my sister is is uh, teaching my niece and nephew at home, and I, I don't know how they're doing it. God bless them, you know. Uh, and everyone else is doing it or trying. It's incredible. Um, all right, I want a couple things I want to hit on with you, Keith, before I we talk about kind of the future of boxing and and the coronavirus and how it's impacting uh, the the sport itself. But re- recently, Bob Arum came out and kind of acknowledged what was obvious to anybody that knows boxing, and that is that the Wilder Fury rematch is not going to take place in July uh, as originally scheduled. The coronavirus outbreak has changed the entire boxing calendar and Wilder Fury, uh, like everything else, is going to be affected by that. So when I heard that news, Keith, I started to wonder, uh, you know, was that better for somebody, Deontay Wilder or Tyson Fury, to have a little bit of a break, a longer break in between the second and third fights? Let me ask you first, does this more extended layoff benefit one fighter more than the other? 
Uh, I think it would benefit Wilder a little more just because if he's looking to make some changes in the way that he trains for the fight and maybe adding a trainer, as you and I discussed the last time I was on the podcast, you know, if, if they are looking to make some changes in camp, maybe moving the location of the camp or adding an extra set of eyes uh, if, if he doesn't get rid of anyone in his camp. Uh, I think it would favor him a little more because he has more to do between the second and third fights than Tyson Fury. For Tyson Fury, what he did in his last training camp with, uh, with Sugar Hill worked perfectly. Um, so, and he now feels as though he has two ways to beat Deontay Wilder. He feels he outboxed him in the first fight and he outmuscled him in the second fight. So, you know, for him, it's just a matter of, of fighting. And, you know, he has to see how Deontay Wilder approaches the third fight also, because if Wilder increases his punch output and is more aggressive because he can't just lay back and, and, and allow Fury to do what he did to him in the rematch, you know, it'll dictate how Fury fights to some degree. But I think, you know, the, the weight will help Wilder a little bit uh, more maybe than Fury, I think. Yeah, I agree. I think Wilder, you know, when it was only about five months in between the second and third fight, I was a little worried about Deontay Wilder there. I thought that might be too quick a turnaround given the beating that he took in that fight, coupled with the fact that the fight before that was on a pretty quick turnaround as well. Going from Luis Ortiz to Tyson Fury was only, what, three months or so. Uh, so to turn around like that again in a relatively quick time frame, uh, I thought maybe it sort of lent lent some fuel to the idea that Wilder should have uh, taken a pass on this fight and taken some step-aside money. But now that the fight will be, what, like uh, eight months, you know, between the second and third fights, I think that's more than enough time for Deontay Wilder to recover both physically and mentally, get back in the gym for a full training camp, make the changes to his team that that he might make, like you're talking about there, and, and really be at 100% going into that next fight. So I think this really benefits Wilder. And with Fury, look, he has he's so far removed or at least a couple years removed now uh from you know being kind of on, on the brink of just a lot of bad things, being gone from boxing, death even with sort of his mental health issues that he was dealing with. Uh I think I don't think we have to worry too much about him, but you never know with Tyson Fury. Like, you know, one thing I thought about Fury was how he would react after winning and accomplishing something he hadn't accomplished to date. He hadn't won that WBC title before. And when Fury beat Vladimir Klitschko, I know from talking to him, there was a part of Tyson Fury that felt like, all right, I've achieved what I set out to achieve. What else is there to achieve in boxing? Now, maybe he's well past that and is still extremely motivated to fight Deontay Wilder again. But I do wonder with Fury, you know, given some of the past issues, if a longer layoff winds up hurting him. Yeah, I think so, Chris. I mean, as you said, I mean, he seems to be in a much better place mentally and just overall a much better place in his life than he was after he beat Vladimir Klitschko, where obviously he went through some terrible things and was in a very dark place. Uh, but you always have to worry, of course, with someone who has addiction issues. You know, he's a recovering alcoholic. He's, he was addicted to cocaine. He has, beyond uh, his mental health, he has other addiction issues. So that's always you know, idle time is always uh, terrible for people who are battling addiction. But uh, so you'd have to be concerned about him to some degree. Um, hopefully he, you know, he, he's able to spend a lot of time with his family and, and just really enjoy the fruits of his labor. Uh, and, I, and I do think there is one thing for him beyond beating Deontay Wilder again and, pr and proving his complete superiority over Wilder. Beyond that, there's the possibility of him fighting Anthony Joshua and what would be perhaps the biggest fight in British boxing history. And 
aside from making a lot of money, you know, just historically and what it would do for his legacy. I think having that kind of ahead of him is a motivational factor and something that could keep him on track. Uh, who knows when that fight potentially could happen, even if uh, he beats Wilder in their third fight. You know, it could take a while between mandatories and the promotional stuff and all the things that tend to get in the way of these big fights. But, uh, but yeah, you'd have to worry about him a little bit, just having all this time on his hands in between. But uh, hopefully, like you said, he's in the type of place mentally where that won't be a factor for him. Let's stick with that for a second, Keith. Before the coronavirus outbreak hit, uh, Eddie Hearn was talking about finding a way to make an offer to Deontay Wilder to step aside and not face Fury next, you know, clearly so Fury could face Anthony Joshua in a major fight uh, in the fall. Um, I, I would assume that's off the table now, given the all the time changes and everything that's going on in the world of sports at the moment. But what did you think of that at the time? Did you think it was wise for Deontay Wilder to consider taking step-aside money, or was it just about getting back in and getting that title shot once more? I think it would have depended on how much step-aside money you're talking about. I mean, because there was so much money that could have been involved in a Joshua Fury fight. Is the step-aside money $5 million? Then he wouldn't do it. If the step-aside money was 15 or $20 million, and you're talking about guaranteeing him fighting the winner, he would get, just for argument's sake, say it was $15 million to not fight and allow this other fight to happen. Now, of course, you're taking the risk of Joshua beating Fury, and then you're not getting the chance to really avenge your loss to Fury, but then he would be guaranteed the fight with Joshua. It would all be predicated on him being guaranteed with no fights in between afterward, and that would require all kinds of cooperation from the sanctioning bodies and everything because people have been waiting so long for their mandatory, particularly Dillian White. If he beats Povetkin, he'd still be in position for the uh, for the WBC mandatory. But if you could arrange it that way, if the money was substantial enough and he was guaranteed the winner in the next fight without any questions, you'd have to consider it. But in terms of relinquishing control of the situation, he doesn't want to do that no matter how much money is involved because he's guaranteed a lot of money for this third fight. He's guaranteed Tyson Fury undefeated a chance to win back his title. But if he, if Fury were to beat, uh, if Joshua were to beat Fury, he would own all of the titles and then Wilder would get not only a substantial payday to wait it out, but also the opportunity to win all of the heavyweight titles at one time. So it's certainly something that was worth thinking about, um, but it's not going to happen now. But, but I didn't think it was an outlandish idea. I mean, there were people saying, oh, it's ridiculous. I mean, it's not ridiculous if someone offers you 15 or $20 million to step aside. And that would obviously be an unprecedented amount of money to step aside. But if that were the case, that they thought they could do that, he would have had to have entertained it at least. Yeah, no question, especially with Eddie Hearn kind of at least theoretically playing with all that Saudi Arabian money and the type of money they could offer to get uh, Wilder to step aside. If it was 8 to $10 million not to fight with a guarantee that you'd face the winner, I, I don't know how you'd turn something like that down. Now, I, I have a different opinion now, Keith, given that this fight's been pushed to October, just because, I mean, Deontay Wilder's 34 years old. At some point, you have to worry about age catching up to him. And if for some reason... You know, if, if for some reason Eddie Hearn came to the table in like July and said, all right, we got $10 million for you, don't fight. Even with that amount of money, you'd be talking about Deontay Wilder being out of the ring for, you know, probably over a year before he'd get a crack at the winner. If you think about the timeline being April or May of 2021, when he would step in with 
uh, with the winner of that fight. Now, he could theoretically take an interim fight in between, uh, but that's a risk too. I mean, you don't know what anything could happen in one of the interim fights, and if he wound up losing for some reason, um, all everything would be taken off the table. I just think at this point, he's got to just you know fully embrace, and he is fully embracing the idea of fighting Tyson Fury uh, for the third time. Kind of put all his chips on the table and say, you know, this is it. Yeah, Chris, I, I think the, the biggest thing why you would do the third fight right away is because, again, this is taking the Joshua Fury fight out of it for a second. You know, anything could happen in between. So if he were to allow that fight to happen, and then as you said, he fights someone else, what if he gets clipped and he gets knocked out and then he doesn't get the fight? So And then he, and then he obviously he would cost himself a lot of money by not getting the winner of Joshua Fury or Fury because, of course, he would make less money for whichever interim fight he would take in between. Now, of course, they would match him softly if they were trying to do that. But then if you look at it from Al Heyman's perspective, is he going to pay Deontay Wilder? I'm just throwing this number out there. But is he going to pay him 4 or $5 million to fight someone you know he's going to knock stiff when, he, when they lost money on the first uh, on the rematch between Wilder and Fury and are now on the hook for the third fight, which is you know, they very well could lose money on that too based on the guarantees. You're not just going to keep flushing money down the toilet. So going to the third fight from a financial standpoint for those involved in that third fight makes more sense than anything also. Yeah, I agree. And I think it's going to happen in October, uh, assuming you know everything kind of goes back to normal at some point by the summertime or even the early fall, and uh, we get that third fight. Who knows what happens in it? I mean, there's a lot to, to think about there, but uh, I think it does happen uh, later on this year. Uh, speaking of potential step-asides or other opponents, uh, we do have at least a tentative financial deal for Canelo Alvarez to fight Gennady Golovkin uh, for a third time, Keith. Now, both fighters right now, from what I understand, are at least hoping to get one more fight in before a scheduled fight in September. Canelo has basically agreed to a deal with Billy Joe Saunders. They were going to announce that before this corona outbreak uh, made this uh, made it impossible. And Golovkin against Zarameta in a fight that would be kind of a shake-off-the-rust fight for Golovkin, his mandatory challenger who, uh, not a big puncher and somebody Golovkin should uh, handle pretty easily. Uh, what do you think happens now? I mean, is it still a matter of, you know, when all the dust settles with this coronavirus stuff? Or do you think it behooves both fighters just to say, forget about that interim fight. Let's go straight into our September matchup. Yeah, I think it, like everything in boxing right now, Chris, I think it is related to when we go back to normal from the coronavirus situation. So uh, if it happens fast enough where Golovkin can make his mandatory defense on June 6th, I believe it is, which is the date that's tentatively penciled in for him to do that, and Canelo could fight Saunders, I don't know, mid-June to late June, then they still could fight on September 12th. Uh, they'd have a little bit of time off between their fights. Obviously, Golovkin would have a little bit more time off than Canelo would. Um, but you start getting closer to July. Canelo is not going to fight Saunders in July and fight uh, Triple G in September. So some people have said, of course, and it's a valid point, you know, don't be married to the Mexican Independence Day holiday. You know, just have them have him fight Saunders, uh, have Golovkin make his mandatory defense, and then have them fight in November or December. Canelo still would get two fights in this year, as would Golovkin, and you could do it that way. But um, I, I don't know. I, they, they're going to want to do an event in Las Vegas. Assuming everything gets back to normal, they're going to want to do a big boxing event on that weekend in Las Vegas because they're losing so much money 
particularly the MGM properties in Las Vegas are losing so much money every day that they're closed now. They're going to want to have some big events where they can draw people. And that's certainly a third Golovkin-Canelo fight on uh, September 12th on the, you know, it's a, it's a weekend that they build boxing events around for year. They've done that for years in Las Vegas, whether it was Mayweather or Canelo. Uh, they're going to want to do that. So even last year, Chris, you remember they were so desperate to have a boxing event in Vegas. They did the Tyson Fury Otto Wallin fight on September 14th at T-Mobile Arena. You know, neither guy's Mexican. It had nothing to do with Mexican Independence Day, but they had a fight there anyway. You know, they, they just really want to have fights on that date. Uh, so I think from the MGM's perspective, when they get back in business here, they're going to be pushing for that to happen also. And they have been a good partner to Canelo and Golden Boy and DAZN. So I think that could be a factor also. But I, I do think there's a chance here that Billy Joe Saunders, unfortunately for him, because this has happened to him multiple times, he might not get the Canelo fight. He, maybe he'll get the winner, but he might not get the fight first and he'll just have to wait it out. Do you still think Vegas is the most likely option for that fight? Because, I mean, Golovkin doesn't want to fight there. And I've heard a lot of rumblings about Texas and Cowboy Stadium and that being a realistic option for that fight. I think it is. you know, And it's certainly something that's been mentioned. But we don't know what any of this is going to do to NFL schedules or other schedules. There are just so many things that are up in the air now. It's hard to say uh, that, that Look, I would think that the NFL will begin its season, that we'll go back to normal soon enough for the NFL to begin its season the way it's supposed to and all that. But we just don't know in terms of which venues are going to be available because other sports leagues are changing their schedules and they might be playing at times that they're not playing ordinarily, their regular seasons or their playoffs or whatever. So it might change a lot of things in terms of building availability. But I think you are right. You know, Of course, Golovkin has made no bones about the fact that he does not want to fight Canelo in Las Vegas again. But if it's a matter of going to Las Vegas again, where they're going to offer a lot of money to bring that fight there, or not getting the fight, he's going to take the fight and take his chances because what alternative does he have? He's going to, that's the fight that he wants above all others. So I think he would make that concession if he had to. You know, if they put it in Cowboy Stadium, they would draw a massive crowd. You know, the building holds over 100,000 people. Um, I don't, know that they get a hundred thousand people, but they'll get a lot. They'll get a huge crowd there. Probably the biggest crowd they've had uh, for a boxing event since they, you know, I think they started their first boxing event might've been 2009, I think at uh, AT&T stadium, but uh, maybe 2010, but they've had some big crowds there, but I think they would break the record for a boxing crowd there if they had it there. But I do think that Vegas will be a player because so many things have gone wrong financially for the casino industry over the last few weeks. I think they'll be looking for big events. Why don't they just do it in New York? I mean, no, nothing against Vegas. Great place, great venue. Cowboy Stadium is fine, too. I mean, I, I think it's a tough place to watch a fight for fans because for the most part, you're watching it on that massive big screen, and it doesn't really have the same intimate environment that a Las Vegas venue or a New York venue has. But doesn't Madden Square Garden feel like the perfect compromise? Like, Canelo has been there already he did an incredible crowd there for Rocky Fielding. His crowd was so good, it convinced Anthony Joshua to fight there six months later. That's how how good his crowd was at Madison Square Garden. And Golovkin, we know he considers MSG kind of his home turf. I mean, maybe it's just too practical and too logical a thought process, Keith, but MSG seems like... And we, we know most likely the Garden's going to be available. Like, the Rangers aren't going to be playing. The Knicks aren't going to be playing. So... 
you're not going to have availability issues most likely on, on that weekend as well. It's not the same as Las Vegas on Mexican Independence Day, but you'll still have maybe the strongest, most energetic crowd that either fighter has experienced in their careers. Yeah, I think the Garden would be a great place for the fight, Chris, and I'd be all for it because I could just drive over there for all the weeks as <laughs> opposed to flying to Vegas. And, and I know you have a place in New York also, so it'd be great for you too. But I think from Canelo's standpoint, even though he has fought there and he really enjoyed his experience against Rocky Fielding, a lot of Canelo fans were there that night. It was a pretty great atmosphere from what we remember. Uh, but he would kind of be making a concession for Golovkin by doing that because it is kind of considered – Golovkin's home away from home more so than it is Canelo's. And as we found out since they fought the second time, Canelo's not looking to give Golovkin anything. I mean, he doesn't even really want to fight him. Forget, you know, fighting in an arena where it might favor Golovkin more or, or be seen as like a home fight for Golovkin, even though he's from Kazakhstan. I mean, he's fought at the Garden so many times. Um, so I don't think that the fight would be at the Garden primarily for that reason. But it would historically, and, and it's a great venue for boxing, and just, you know, what Madison Square Garden means in the history of boxing and everything, it would be great. But I think the two venues that we discussed earlier, you know, T-Mobile Arena or, you know, maybe MGM Grand Garden Arena, depending on which building's available, or the AT&T AT Stadium, uh, you know, the Cowboys home stadium would be the two places uh, that would be potential venues for the fight. You know, one thing I would say to Canelo would be that if, you know, he fought at Madison Square Garden, um, he could walk into Golovkin's home arena and have far more fans than Golovkin would have. I, I think, I don't know if you agree, but I think if they fought at the Garden, it would be like 90% Canelo fans. I think his fans are more likely to show up, buy tickets, um, basically against versus anybody except for like an uber-popular British guy. But I think Canelo's fans will overwhelm anybody else's fans. Yeah, you know, Chris, I was really uh, taken by how many Mexican fans there were there that were in the building that night when he fought Rocky Fielding. He was a huge yeah. favorite. Rocky Fielding was, you know, he, no one expected him to even be competitive with Canelo. But there were so many people there. I saw so many cool things that night just from, you know, proud Mexican people bringing babies. I saw this, this one couple. They were a young couple. I, if I had to guess, they were maybe in their mid-20s, and they had an infant dressed in a Canelo head. I mean, I don't know if it's a great idea to take an infant into that environment, but but it was just it just really uh, drove home to me how much Canelo means to people, to Mexican people living here in the United States. And there is a large con concentration of Mexican people, uh, Mexican Americans in the New York, New Jersey area. So I think you're right. I think uh, it would be definitely a pro Canelo crowd if they fought there, uh, if they fought anywhere, probably because Canelo is a wildly popular fighter. And I'm not saying Golovkin doesn't have a fan base, but he's not as popular as Canelo. Yeah, I mean, Canelo's fans travel anywhere, whether it's Las Vegas, Mexico, California. I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really matter. Just be cool, because that atmosphere, as you point out, was tremendous. I think it was one of the best boxing atmospheres I can recall for a fight that really wasn't a high-level fight. It had a high-level fighter, but it was going up against a, a inferior guy in Rocky Field, and whoever kind of knew what the outcome was going to be, and they still packed that venue, and they still did an incredible crowd with an incredible uh, atmosphere. So we'll see. There's a lot we still don't know about Canelo and Golovkin uh, and some of the terms uh, for that fight. Uh, Keith, I want to ask you, you talked to a lot of people in boxing during this hiatus. Uh, I, I do as well. Um, what sense do you get that there are preparations being made for how things are going to play out over the next couple of months. I mean, obviously the hope is that six months from now, we're completely back to normal. We're able to do major events 
in stadiums, in arenas, all that stuff. But do you get any sense that promoters out there are preparing for the shorter term when, say, you know, they're allowed by the CDC to let, you know, 100 people into a venue that would allow them to do fights behind closed doors? Do you get the sense that there are plans in place from some promoters out there? Well, they're definitely discussing it, Chris. I mean, those studio shows are an option because if you're allowed to do something like that before you can put people in venues, they'll need to get some fights off the books, for lack of better words, because they're going to be so backlogged with fights. You know, Top Rank, for example, has so many contracts with fighters and so many fights that they that they have had to postpone and that will be postponed probably. You know, the Jose Ramirez-Victor Postal fight probably will be postponed a second time because of this coronavirus. They, you know, they pushed it back three months and it's going to be postponed again probably because of that. Uh, that hasn't happened yet, but most of their fights have been postponed. So they have guys that they owe fights to. And I think that they are really considering those studio settings for a multitude of reasons. But one, if the, if the other sports leagues, if they're able to do things like that, shows like that, before the other sports leagues get back into the swing of things, they'll have opportunities on all these networks because they'll be so desperate for live programming, which is why they've explored this even, you know, before, before last week and the week before when it was still a possibility because there's, as you know, on ESPN and all these other sports FS one and all these sports channels, they're just showing replays because what else can you show? There's no live sports going on right now. So I think they would be in a strong position if they could do some boxing shows before the NBA, NHL, MLB restart or start their seasons uh, because they would have some leverage there. And, and I, you know, beyond those, they're not ideal, obviously. The atmosphere is not ideal uh, as far as having no fans in the building or anything, but they just might have to from a practicality standpoint. And then the other thing for them to consider, Chris, is when those leagues are back to playing, the NBA, the NHL, uh, Major League Baseball, and then, of course, um, the, the football training camps will start and everything in the summer. Boxing is going to be low on the pecking order. So, you you know, you're going to have fights maybe on Tuesday nights or Wednesday nights. You're just going to basically take the dates that are available to you from the networks with which you have deals because you don't have any choice. So I, I think, you know, from that standpoint, they'll try to get in as much as they can early. And I think there will be a flurry of activity once – you're allowed to stage fights again in the very beginning. I think it's going to be kind of dizzy. You know, people who are saying now, you know, we miss boxing so much, you know, the hardcore fans that really miss watching fights every weekend, they'll have more boxing than they know what to do with when this starts up again. Do you think box, boxing should embrace that, Keith, the idea that, you know, you can do fights on different days of the week? And I'm not even talking about competition from other sports because there definitely will be that. I mean, not just NBA, NHL, NFL, college football, but all the niche sports that are like boxing that have pushed their schedules into the fall, whether it's golf tournaments or horse racing or tennis tournaments. I mean, there is, there. is if things go according to optimistic plans, the second half of the year is going to be the most jam-packed sports calendar maybe that we've ever seen. But beyond that, like I don't think I want to see every Saturday – populated by a street fight between ESPN, Fox, and DAZN with their best programming. I would love to see these promoters and networks think outside the box, embrace Friday nights, embrace maybe not Sunday nights because you don't want to go up against football, but embrace Tuesday nights. It used to be Tuesday night fights on USA. Like Embrace these 
you know, unconventional days of the week in order to get the most eyeballs. Because if you start locking in on Saturdays, you're not only going to compete with, you know, other sports, you're going to wind up competing with, you know, networks inside your sport. And that's just going to cannibalize everything. You know, Chris, I think it's, uh, it's worth exploring going on different days of the week. And when we get back up and running here, boxing is going to have no choice but to do that in some instances because the other sports leagues will have Saturday nights, uh, you know, in certain cases, you know, when the NBA playoffs are going on and NHL playoffs and, and things like that, um, you know, they'll have no choice but to go on other nights of the week. The resistance that you generally get from boxing promoters about doing particularly bigger shows on weeknights is that they won't get much of a gate because it's already hard to sell boxing tickets on Saturday nights, theoretically the night that people are the freest of the week based on the work schedules. Uh, so it will be harder to get people to come to fights on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night. Um, but I think they, you know, they'll, they've done it in the past, but those were generally lower level shows. So uh, you're sacrificing from the gate, but at the same time, as you and I both know, you know, you're in television and work for a streaming service and everything, you know, that, that TV and the streaming services are, everything is directed from them because they're paying most of the money. I mean, the sport wouldn't exist the way that it is if it weren't for television and the zone and other streaming services. So um, they, they'll have little choice, but to go during the week, I don't know that it'll become a regular thing in the long term. Uh, maybe Friday nights, but Friday nights are much different, of course, than Tuesdays or Wednesdays. And from a television standpoint, the one uh, difficulty that you'll have with boxing um, on weeknights, say a Monday or a Tuesday or a Wednesday even, is you can't have fights going on at midnight uh, on the East Coast because people will not watch them. They'll be, they'll be asleep and getting ready for work the next day and everything. So, um, so they'd have to start them a little earlier, and then that would basically – relegate you to the east coast because you're not going to start boxing cards at three o'clock in the afternoon on a weekday on the west coast um so there are some challenges as far as that goes but we will definitely see fights on weeknights because boxing will have little choice but to do that yeah it could be a good experiment too i mean you're right the big shows canelo joshua uh the big names in boxing they'll still go on saturdays when you can maximize an audience late at night but you know, the lesser fights, the the still title fights, Shakur Stevenson types, um, you know, 135-pound fights. I mean, you just, you, you can put on, you can try to put on, you know, mid-level shows on weeknights. And maybe you get the kind of data back that says might be worth it. Maybe Tuesday night is a great night to have boxing was not going up against, you know, NBA or NHL or NFL and things like that uh, during the week. So I think it's an interesting chance for boxing to to learn a few things uh, about the sport. So I'm I'm kind of looking forward to that. Um, I want to ask you one other thing about... Well, before I go to, go to Andy Ruiz, the one thing I do want to say about the short-term in boxing is that, Keith, I do hope that promoters are working hard right now preparing for like that May 15th date when we all kind of believe the CDC is going to have updated numbers on types of crowds you can have because the promoter that survives and even thrives is the one working on it right now. Like, there should be promoters out there that should have announcements kind of ready to go the day that the CDC makes their uh, makes their position on crowd sizes known. If, if the CDC says over 100 or 200, there should be promoters out there that say, okay, we've got a fight in June, we've got two fights in July, we are ready to go with big events. Those promoters 
are going to have the most success, at least in the short term. Because I, I agree with what you said earlier. There is a vacuum for sports right now. And if boxing can capitalize on it, uh, the promoters that do it, I think are going to be in a great position. Yeah, you're right, Chris. The only thing is, of course, boxing promoters, the ones that work with networks like ESPN, Fox, FS1, there's for everyone. They can have as much planning done as they want. They still might not be able to do exactly what they want because the dates won't be available. Or as we were just discussing, fights will have to be on Tuesday nights as opposed to a Saturday night. And then it depends on building availability and and as we mentioned before, we're going to do some studio shows because they might have to in the beginning if crowds are limited to 100 or 200. Um, they might have to do some of those. So I just think there will be a flurry of activity when we go back to uh, some sense of normalcy. And uh, it'll be interesting because there's going to be a lot of boxing on television. There's going to be a lot of live sports on television in general. And then we'll see where boxing kind of fits in when people haven't seen live sports in such a long time. I mean, it's, it's so foreign to us, Chris, as – you know, forget about covering boxing for a living, but we're all big sports fans. You know, we all have our favorite sports and everything. We're constantly used to having, it's just sometimes just having a live sport on in the background while you're doing things around the house or working or whatever. And it's just odd not to have a live sporting event on for the, it's the longest period of time that there hasn't been a live sporting event on in any of our lifetimes. So, uh, you know, since the invention of television, basically. So, uh, it's, it's pretty crazy. It's a pretty different time, but, um, when, it, when the sports all come back, though, Chris, it's going to be nuts. I mean, there's the, all there is going to be is live sports on television, basically. Yeah, it's going to be wild. Uh, you know, when it comes to the you know, fights being prepared, I'm just, I'm just hoping that, you know, that they don't have to wait like three weeks, four weeks to start making deals for fights uh, and, and then just have to wait, you know, six weeks, eight weeks to get those fights actually happening. I'd like to see promoters be prepared to do fights in June, July um, as things get going. So, you know, if hypothetically, Keith... You know, Demetrius Andrade and Jamal Charles were hanging around and felt like, you know, FaceTiming each other and agreeing to financial terms, bringing Eddie Hearn in via FaceTime and saying, you know, Jamal, you know, Demetrius, let's put aside these petty differences and let's make a deal to have a huge middleweight unification fight in July. Let's get together via technology, make this deal happen so we can have the biggest fight of the summer set as soon as it's safe to actually do so. Well, I, I know it's our obligatory Andre Charlo discussion for the podcast, but uh, <laughs> one thing we definitely have learned during, and it doesn't surprise either one of us, I don't think, but one thing we've learned during this coronavirus lockdown is Eddie will find a way to get his message out there. That's for sure. Whether he's doing live chats with his fighters, talking about horses and other kinds of crazy stuff, uh, Eddie will find a way to contact people that he needs to contact to do business. So who knows? Yeah, by, by the way, speaking of those Eddie Hearn Instagram chats, uh, Billy Joe Saunders on one of those chats took a shot at Canelo and the tainted meat. I, I would advise Billy Joe Saunders, if he's trying to get the deal to face Canelo over the finish line, that's probably not a good thing to say. Because as we've learned with Golovkin, that particular critique does not sit well with Canelo. And one thing we know about Canelo is that he knows the financial power he holds over other fighters. So Canelo knows that if Billy Joe fights him, Billy Joe gets a career-high payday. And Canelo loves to lord that over, guys. So maybe watch what you say with that tainted meat stuff, right? I feel like that might have been maybe the wrong button to push if I was Billy Joe Saunders. Uh, I wrote a story for BoxingScene.com on that because we're obviously we're searching everywhere for content at this point. And it was a 
it was interesting that he said it, but I, I think Billy Joe Saunders is just one of those ball busters who can't help himself. You know, even I don't think he cares whether Canelo is offended by that or not. You're, I'm not saying what you're saying is wrong. I just don't think he cares. You know, he's, he's going to bust chops and, 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 a guy who's had a PED issue himself. Yeah. I, understand, I understand what his, you know, what his rationale is. It was a nasal spray and it's fine to use it on the day of competition up to the day of competition in the UK. I get it. I mean, that's, but, but Canelo has his excuse for clenbuterol too. So you can believe whomever you want, I guess. But, uh, but a, for a guy who had his own title fight canceled and was stripped of his title because he, he couldn't get a license in your glorious state of Massachusetts, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know that he, you know, he lives in a glass house to some degree. So I don't know that he really should be casting stones at Canelo Alvarez, but, uh, but to answer your original question, I don't really think he cares because Saunders just, I mean, this is a guy whose son, you know, punched one of his opponents in the groin at a weigh-in. So I don't, I don't really know that any, you know, rules apply to Billy Joe Saunders when you're trying to make sense of it all, you know? <laughs> yeah. You're, I think you're right. He does just speak off the cuff, but it is kind of a glass house scenario. I mean, nasal spray, tainted beef. I mean, these are all uh, excuses that are open to interpretation with uh, with what people actually believe. Uh, let me finish, Keith, with Andy Ruiz. I want to ask you about his future because it, it does seem like forever ago now that Ruiz was the unified heavyweight champion, beating Anthony Joshua at Madison Square Garden. I mean, since then, he's had a bad loss to Joshua where he was outclassed, came into that fight completely out of shape, wound up leaving his trainer, Manny Robles, is now is kind of wandering into the wilderness with no trainer, no fight scheduled, um, and nothing really going right now. I mean, what do you make of the future of Andy Ruiz? I mean, is Teddy Atlas the guy that he's leaning towards? And if he does, does Teddy Atlas, can he make a difference with a fighter like Ruiz? I think Teddy Atlas could make a difference with him, but he's going to have to do it Teddy Atlas's way or the highway because that's the way Teddy operates. He's always operated that way. You know, he was on a... a, a a show a couple of weeks ago, the Ock and Barack show on, uh, on Sirius. And, and Teddy said, you have to treat Andy Ruiz. He, and he prefaced it by saying, I know this is a harsh analogy, but you have to treat him like a drug addict because he has a problem with food and you have to remove him from the comfortability of his environment. And you can't let him do what he wants. And uh, I don't know if Andy Ruiz is willing to make those types of sacrifices to go to New York to train with Teddy or to go somewhere outside of Southern California to do that. Um, but I'll tell you what, if Teddy Atlas becomes his trainer, I, I think we could all get our popcorn ready and, uh, and take a look at those training sessions and some of the things that he'll say to, uh, Andy Ruiz or be a very, the, the one thing that gets lost in this a little bit though, Chris, just to, just to stop that train of thought for a second is that Manny Robles is a very good trainer and to blame him for what happened here when he was repeatedly telling Ruiz to focus on camp and to you know, and and trying to treat him like an adult, but warning him that he was too heavy and that, you know, he, he had done all those things during training camp. And now he's kind of, I don't think fans are blaming him or media is blaming Ant, uh, Manny Robles, but clearly Andy Ruiz thinks he had something to do with him losing because he hasn't, I don't even think they've spoken since the fight. So, um, you know, that, that's not a good look for Andy Ruiz, I don't think, to to just terminate his relationship with Manny Robles like that. But uh, to answer your question, though, I, I'd love to see Teddy Atlas get a crack at training him. And, and I, but if it's not Teddy Atlas, who is it? And, you know, is he going to take it more seriously? Is he going to make the sacrifices necessary 
where he comes in at, you know, 250 or something like that, as opposed to 283 and a half. I mean, it's just way too heavy, you know? So um, we'll find out soon enough, but I think his first fight, you know, will be against the guy that he's supposed to beat. And I think uh, maybe the second fight of his comeback and is where we'll really learn whether he's going to get back to that top, top level or not. Yeah. To your point about Manny Robles, blaming Manny Robles for the loss to Joshua is like, it's like blaming the pizza for getting, for you getting fat. Like it doesn't, it's not Manny Robles's fault that you didn't listen to him. It's not the pizza's fault that you ate it. Like it doesn't, it, 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 this, it doesn't really line up with anything that makes any kind of realistic sense. Now, I do think that Teddy Atlas would be the right fit for him because I think Teddy Atlas would, you know, come hell or high water, get him into better shape. He'd have to completely change his training camp habits. He'd have to probably move, you know, to you know, Long Island or Staten Island to where Teddy Atlas has a gym and train there, but that might not be the worst thing for Andy Ruiz. And I don't know, Keith, I- I'm still I'm still a believer in Andy Ruiz's talent. I-, I don't look at the win over Anthony Joshua as being completely fluky. I mean, this was a guy that was a, a pretty accomplished amateur who, going into the Joshua fight, had built some momentum. I mean, he had a very close loss uh, to Joseph Parker. I mean, very much right there with him at the end. He had built some momentum with wins over Kevin Johnson. Then he knocked out Dimitrenko. And then he goes into the garden and showcases the skills that we know he has. He has a great chin. He has, you know, good, really good hand speed for a heavyweight. Um, he, those tools are still there. And I still think at 30 years old, there's a lot to still be unlocked with Andy Ruiz. I still think with the heavyweight division eventually going to see those titles fragmented once again, I could see Andy Ruiz with the right discipline getting back and becoming a heavyweight champion again. I, I believe in his talent that much. Am I wrong there? Is he? Am I overrating his his talent? I don't think so, Chris. And, and I think one of the key things that you mentioned, while all the things that you said are obviously true, he's still only 30 years old. So he still has a, a large portion of his physical prime left, particularly for a heavyweight, where he could kind of change the way he goes about training, become more disciplined, and, and get his career back on track. Now, I, I don't know how far his career is off track necessarily. I mean, he lost to Anthony Joshua. He was outboxed in that fight. He was clearly overweight didn't take training seriously enough, but that was just one fight. It's not like he's been knocked out multiple times or anything like that. And he's still the guy who pulled off one of the biggest upsets in heavyweight history less than a year ago. So he'll continue to be a, a, you know, a guy that people will want to see fight who they'll put in high level fights eventually. And people will want to watch him box much like Kasim Rockman, you know, Rockman had a pretty lengthy career at the top level, even after Lennox Lewis knocked him out in the rematch. Uh, he was still the guy who knocked out Lennox Lewis that night in South Africa. And I think Ruiz has more left of himself at this point maybe than Rockman did after he got knocked out by Lewis in the rematch. Uh, so I think there are still plenty of big nights for him left there. If, if, but I think it, it matters who he hires as his trainer, Chris, because we'll see how serious he is about changing his training habits based on who he hires. And if it's not Teddy Atlas, is it someone else who's a disciplinarian who's going to demand from him the things that are necessary for him to get the most out of his ability? Uh, or is it someone that he's just more comfortable with uh, who just happens not to be Manny Robles and, and, and he's going to continue going about his business the same way? If he doesn't make any, any changes, I mean, he's just – I don't know. I mean, maybe he won't come in at 283 and a half again, but if he doesn't come in like 30, 30 to 35 pounds lighter – because he's not that tall of a guy either. So uh, if he doesn't come in significantly lighter for his next fight, that's going to tell you how 
uh, how that he's not really taking it as seriously as he should be. Teddy Atlas and Andy Ruiz would be like boxing's odd couple, like the hyperactive, hyper intense Teddy. It's a reality show for sure. I mean, I Teddy and most people is a, is a reality show, but 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 just to you know, because he will demand things of Andy Ruiz that. Um, yeah, I'm not saying those things haven't been demanded of him by other trainers. I don't want to shortchange everyone that he's worked with in the past, but uh, but he'll definitely do it in a demonstrative way and, and, a, and in a way that lets Andy Ruiz know you're going to do it this way or we're not going to work together because at this point, Teddy's made enough money and, he, and, he's, and he's old enough now where I just don't think he's going to bother with people that, that are not going to do what he wants. You know, he's not going to – he doesn't need it, so to speak. So he's not just going to let the fighter dictate to him which is why he wants Andy Ruiz to come to New York for a few days, have them work together in the gym, see how coachable Andy would be, um, how, how Andy would be receptive or not receptive to what he wants him to do. And I think, you know, they'll go through that little trial period if Ruiz really wants to uh, to see if it'll work and then they'll go from there. I mean, it, it very well could be that they'll say, hey, you know, we're not really for each other, but you know, thanks for coming. Appreciate your time. And that's it. And they go to their separate ways, but, but maybe it'll work. Yeah, maybe. I think an in-shape Andy Ruiz is still good for the heavyweight division, still has a chance to make a name uh, in the heavyweight division. Uh, Keith, always appreciate the time, man. Um, enjoy the however long this break continues to last. And, you know, if you get bored, just, you know, you can always write Charlo Android stories. I mean, they they, they, they <laughs> Charlo click. Android, it's better than, uh, you know, some of the stuff we're, we're writing at this point, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> you know how we do it in we, we put up uh, – it's nonstop content, and when there's not, when there aren't fights happening, that is not easy. So, uh, you know, we're trying. But when there are, when there are not fights happening, you wind up trolling Eddie Hearn's Instagram feed looking for content, is what you you're telling me. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Appreciate the time, Keith. All right, stay safe up there. Thanks, Chris. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Now, I'm supposed to talk here about what I remember and what I loved about my first car. And that's easy for me to do because I still have my first car. And as long as it keeps running, and so far so good, I intend to have that car probably until the day I die. Uh, That's how much I love that car. It is like a child to me. Now, it does require some upkeep, and that's why I'm grateful for a place like eBay Motors. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, roof racks, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. All right, Mikey Garcia is here, four-division world champion and officially a welterweight winner. What's going on, Mikey? I'm good. Thanks, Chris. All good. How does it feel, you know, a couple weeks removed from, you know, getting that that first win as a welterweight? How, how does that feel to you right now? Uh, it feels good, you know. Um, I think, uh, you know, I, I cleared my objective, you know, which was obviously to win a, a good fight. Um, at the walkway limit where a lot of people still don't believe I should be campaigning. And, um, you know, rightfully so. I think, I think, you know, based on, you know, last year's performance, you know, they have all the right to, to have that opinion. But I think, you know, last, last, uh, weekend, uh, you know, when I beat Jesse and the way we fought everything, I think, uh, turned out very, very well and everything, uh, went my way in, in, in the way that I wanted, you know, I had a good fight. I'm not hurt. I'm not injured. I was able to beat a, a solid uh, former welterweight champion that I think people can consider, you know, I, I can be a, a contender now. It was just under a year ago that you, you fought Errol Spence. You lost a wide decision in that fight. What was the difference in this fight? Well, I mean, I mean, there's, there's a combination of things. I think, uh, you know, being at this weight, carrying this weight uh, for a year now uh, made a, a difference. Um, I didn't feel slow. I didn't feel sluggish and weak like I did last year. Um, so I think that that played a, a big part, a big role. You know, my body got adjusted better to the weight class. Um, also, you know, we, we didn't walk in the into the ring too heavy. Uh, I walked in the ring at 151 pounds, whereas last year I thought, you know, I had to carry a little more weight, being that arrow was going to be a lot bigger on fight night, you know, so... Last year, I walked in, I think it was like 55, 56, somewhere in there. And, you know, it might have been a little too much to, to carry on fight night. Um, but that those are pretty much the, the only things that I can really uh, point out to. You know, I felt, I felt a lot better. You know, I felt, I felt a lot better this time. And you say it felt better. The early rounds, though, I think I scored three of the first four rounds for Jesse Vargas. How were you feeling in those first few rounds? As they were going on, did you feel like you were losing them? And if you did, I mean, was it... Was any kind of panic setting in? Look, we um we knew that Jesse's height and reach, size was going to be a, a factor. You know, um, that's some of the challenges that we uh, are up against. So I had to take a couple of rounds to get adjusted, find the right timing, the right distance, uh, measuring you know his his height and reach versus my timing and speed. Um, and we worked on this during training, but. It's never going to be the same until you face your, your opponent on fight night. So, you know, a couple of rounds, you know, just to feel him out, feel his speed, feel his power, um, feel that, that distance, you know, that timing. But once I started getting the, the rhythm of things, I started to pick up the pace. I was able to start landing better, cleaner shots. And you, you saw the fight, you know, change, change directions after that. I took over. I, I was in control for, for the remainder of the night. Your family, uh, your father, your brother, I have been publicly kind of against you fighting at welterweight. How did they feel after this last fight? Well, my dad was happy. You know, my brother was happy that we won. Uh, 
they still tell me, you know, now that I did it, you know, maybe I should consider <laughs> coming back down to 40. Um, you know, they, they still feel that I'm, I'm a small, you know, fighter uh, at 147. I'm too small. My dad, especially, he, he feels that 140 pounds should be a, a better weight for me to be fighting at. Um, men at 140 are more comparable to my size. Um, you know, he still reminds me all the time. Like, you started at featherweight. You know, I, I was a featherweight. So, you know, size-wise, I'm not a big you know, size. Uh, uh, so I still feel that my abilities, my skills are allowing me to compete at 147. And I feel I can win a title at 147. And I mean, that that's that's part of the challenge. You know, I want to challenge myself, you know, not saying that at 140, there's no challenge. Of course there are, you know, there's many of, of fights at 140. But um, when you look at the politics and business, you know, it's, it's going to be a little more complicated to secure a world title fight at 140 being that you know both champions you know are, are in a different promotional company you know and uh you know one of them you know jose ramirez he's with us he's a teammate of mine with my brother robert so that's out of the question and uh you know uh i just don't feel that i'm gonna be able to secure world title 140 anytime soon so i think my chances are better at 147. when you're when your father and your brother say stuff like that to you how do you process that in your mind do you think all right, that, that's good advice from family members who are deeply invested into boxing. Or do you think, well, you know, fuck you guys. I'm going to keep fighting at 147. No, look, um, we talk a lot. You know, we we get together, you know, daily and we talk a lot about boxing, my career, you know, and other options. But in the end, it's still my call. They, they agree. They understand that, you know, it's my call to, to uh, make the decision. But um, I do consider their opinions. I do consider very much. And I do see their, their reasoning behind their opinion. I do see, you know, the, the, the reason why they feel 140 is a better weight class for me. But like I said, when I look at politics and I look at business, you know, it's, it's going to be, you know, almost impossible to get one of those fights, uh, you know, uh, for a world title at 140. And I, I can't, I don't want to just be, you know, fighting contenders and, and waiting and waiting and waiting. You know, I actually feel that 147 pounds is a bigger challenge. But I still feel confident enough to to accomplish what I want. You know, I want to win a world title at welterweight. My dad also knows that I have the skills to do it. My brother knows I have the skills to do it. But it's a dangerous uh, take. You know, it's a dangerous fight. It's it's a, a bigger challenge, and you know that's that's part of the, the the risk. You know, but that's that's also part of the reward. You win a world title in a fifth division against you know a big welterweight champion that nobody believed you could do it. You know, that's in the history books, and that's that's what I'm after. It's interesting to hear you talk about winning a world title as being important to you because you already have won a world title at 140 pounds. So that, that's an accomplishment you already have. Why is a 140-pound world title still meaningful to you? Because, you know, you're right. You, 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 don't want to, you want to face champions, but at the same time, I think there's a lot of interest or would be a lot of interest in you against the winner of Regis Progray versus Mo Hooker, which would not be for a title. Yeah, there's still some very good fights. Even at 140, there are good fights, and you know I was already champion at 140. Um, so it's it's not it's not that there isn't interesting fights there. Um, it's just that I think accomplishing a world championship uh, at 147 means that much more to me right now. Um, not I'm not saying I won't come back to 40. You know, if the right fight is available at 140. Uh, for my next fight, I, I might be able to come down to 40. You know, if it's if it is, you know, say Progray or Hooker, you know, even if it's a non-title fight, that's still a good fight that, that can interest me. But I have to compare what's available at 147. If I don't have anything available at Watchaway, you know, that's that's exciting or big enough, 
then I will definitely consider coming back to 40 where I can still have great fights and still add to the legacy, you know, by defeating other guys there. But, you know, the biggest challenge right now is 147. And just because everybody thinks I can't do it, that actually motivates me more to, to show everybody that, that I can and I'm, I'm, I'm capable of. So 140, though, that's, the, that's the, the basement. You won't go any lower than 140 at this point in your career. Well, you know, like I said, if, if 140 is, is interesting, you know, with one of those fights that we just mentioned, and I'm not able to secure anything big in, in, in the Rushwood division, then I'm definitely uh, looking to come back to 140. In fact, this fight that I just had against Jesse, you know, for, uh, for my return, before landing on Jesse, we looked at a few names at 140, but they were not available for the time frame that we needed. And so then I looked at 147, which I still felt like I could do something in 47, and that's why we took on this last fight. But I think 140 would be a, a, a good uh, option for me if, if nothing at 47 is presented. So but what you're telling me is that my dream of you and Lomachenko is officially dead. Look, um, I think you, ha you, you have to ask Bob. <laughs> I mean, he, he controls them. He's, he's their promoter. Um, I just saw a recent interview he did where he didn't have uh, much interest in, in a fight with me, with any of his fighters. So, man, I, I'm not I'm not gonna be waiting for anybody. I'm not chasing anybody. I think we're doing big things on ourselves. I think I'm doing great things, and there's a lot of other options. If if he were to uh, come up to 140, you know, and and look at, at a fight with me, I would definitely take that opportunity. You know, that fight would be huge. I think the fans would really really love that. Um, and I'm willing to fight anybody, you know, and I, I can, I can, uh, work with anybody, but, um, um, you got to look at, 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 like the promoter, you know, he's got his promotional company that hasn't had some <laughs> good uh, things to say. So I'll just, I'll just have to wait and see what happens. But you don't think 135 is out for you at this point, right? Is that what you're saying? I, I just don't feel I can do 135 at, uh, in a straight, you know, my next fight. Mm -hmm. I feel that if I do 140 first, I'll be able to give you a better assessment if I can come down to 35 at that point. You know, once I do a fight at 140, maybe I can, you know, feel feel the the the, the weight, you know, and, and and see if I can feel confident doing 135 for for my next one. But as of right now, 135 would, would be uh, impossible for me to make. All right. Well, I'm just going to take that as being my dream is not dead. It's still alive somewhere of you and Lomachenko at some point fighting for the undisputed <laughs> lightweight championship. Um, the fighter that, that you're being talked about right now is Manny Pacquiao. And this is not a new conversation for you. You have been talked about with Pacquiao for a number of years now. Uh, where do we stand with all that? Have you had any conversations with Eddie Hearn about the possibility of you and Pacquiao sometime this summer? Uh, look, we, we spoke to uh, some people uh, uh, before the fight, before my, my fight with Jesse. We, this is back in December, early January, that we had, you know, had some conversations with, with uh, Team Pacquiao um, about possibly entertaining a fight with, with, with me. And they, they liked the idea. But we left it at that. I, I told them I would have to uh, obviously take care of, um, you know, February um, uh, with Jesse Vargas, take care of that fight first, uh, February 29th. And after that, then we could, you know, look into exploring a fight with Manny. I, I just had last week off, completely off. I didn't, I didn't talk any business with anybody. I didn't meet with anybody. Um, I have a few uh, phone uh, conversations uh, scheduled for this week to 
start discussing and getting the ball rolling on, on a potential Manny fight. If we feel that things go well and then we can take it to another step forward, you know, I'll definitely love to fight Manny, you know. So as of right now, I haven't spoken to Eddie. I haven't spoken to anybody uh, with, with Manny either about his team or anybody about a fight. But I hope, you know, that this last fight, this last win that I had, you know, helps and, and opens those doors even bigger. You were a, a top-ranked stablemate of Pacquiao for a number of years. Um, but back then, you were 126, 130 pounds. Were, were you thinking back then that a Pacquiao fight would even be possible for you in your career? Look, we, we fought um, at 130 pounds. Uh, my last fight with, with top rank back in 2014. And right at that time, um, Manny, Manny had fought at 147 already but was still considering maybe coming down to 40. There were some conversations during that time that maybe I can come up to 35 later that year and then jump up to 40 to fight him the following year. And then, like I said, this was 2014, so we would have been looking at sometime like in 2015. Uh, but then I had, a, you know, the layoff. I had the, the litigation issue, the promotional issue, and, you know, all those all those plans went, went out the window. But like I said, I needed, I needed something big. I needed something, you know, to, to excite the crowd. Um, now that I am fighting at 47, I think people can, can consider that a good fight. And now, you know, with the win, obviously that helps. I, I feel that that's going to help, you know, excite the people and, and, and get everybody on board. I think, I think Manny was excited, you know, that, that I won because that also means it's, it's a good fight for him, you know, where, where I think uh, it's, it's a good business decision also, not just because it's a good fight, but it's a good business decision for, for everybody involved. I just feel, you know, the, the opportunity is a lot closer now than it has ever been. Oh, I, I think Manny Pacquiao is very excited about the possibility of fighting you. Your name came out of his mouth very quickly in one of his first interviews after all that. Would you have any problem if the fight had to take place in Saudi Arabia? Uh, I have no problem. I mean, I've told everybody, you know, inside of that ring, it's four corners, four ropes. <laughs> it doesn't matter where it's held. Um, I would just... Uh, most likely take my camp out there, finish camp out there, wherever the fight, you know, if it's in Saudi or if it's any other country, you know, maybe take a whole month out there to get adjusted, acclimated, and and, and used to, to, to the weather, to, you know, the, the, the time change, all that. Um, I, I don't have a problem. I would, I would like to, like to uh, go visit another country, fight in another country also. So I think that would be a, a fun experience. A, a fight with Manny obviously makes tremendous business sense. You would make a lot of money in a fight like that. But when you've watched Pacquiao, is there, are there things about how he fights that you say to yourself, all right, I'm good against that style. It would work for me in a fight like that. Well, I mean, he's, he's very aggressive, very experienced, very strong. But uh, I look at it as an opportunity for me to fight very smart and try to counterpunch, uh, very similar to the way Marquez fought Manny. You know, Marquez, Juan Manuel Marquez was very, very intelligent, uh, great counterpuncher. He did fight uh, Manny, you know, four times. And, you know, even though he lost uh, uh, the, 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 like the middle two fights, uh, I felt that he, he had won. So I think it'll be, it'll be very similar in that way. Where I can uh, use my my intelligence, my counterpunching abilities, you know, and timing to try and, and beat, you know, and overcome that aggressiveness and, and power that Manny uh, possesses. All right, let me finish with this. Um, you've won championships in four weight classes, but getting that win at welterweight after everybody told you not to do it, after very few people thought 
you couldn't do it. Where does that rank for you among career accomplishments? Look, uh, I, I don't, I don't look at you know rankings or ratings. I don't, I don't follow that. That's not my goal. That's not my objective. I just feel that you know it would be a great accomplishment for me to win a, a fifth world title, you know, in a fifth division. I think uh, that would really show you know the whole world that there was so much more that, that I can deliver and. And I'm, you know, proving everybody wrong. I'm, 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 you know, making all these doubters, you know, uh, into believers. I, I just, I just feel that it would probably be one of my biggest accomplishments and biggest victories of my career. Um, but I still wouldn't be done. There's still a lot more uh, out of Mikey Garcia. Yeah, well, Mikey, congratulations, man. Tremendous performance against Jesse Vargas. And whether it's Manny Pacquiao or somebody else, thanks. I know a lot of people looking forward to seeing you back in the ring once again. Uh, thanks for joining me, man. I appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Chris. Appreciate you guys. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. At JCPenney, fashion counts for everybody and everybody. The weather is getting warmer and it's time to swap my winter layers for fun, vibrant, and cool clothing with so many fun things happening this spring like Mother's Day and the Wind Down Tour. It's hard to find great looking clothes that fit you just right. That's why I love JCPenney. JCPenney has so many stylish and comfortable options for so many different body types. I've been blown away by their selection and everything hugs my body in all the right spots. Refresh your wardrobe this spring with style that gets you. Something to wear that fits your favorite moments of the season at prices that feel just as good. Discover brands that get you and put style and comfort first, like Worthington and Liz Claiborne for her, each in women's petite and plus sizes. Here, spring comes in all shapes, sizes, and colors. JCPenney, make everybody count.